So Money Episode 1073, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. Friday, July 24th, 2020. How's everyone doing? Hanging in there? For those of you who may be on unemployment insurance and receiving the extra $600 pandemic relief per week, that's expiring at the end of the month. Now, we know that the government is working hard to come up with another stimulus package, hopefully soon. But what happens if you are relying on that $600 additional weekly payment? What happens then? Many of us I know are looking at fast cash options like payday loans and cash advances. Very tempting, very quick to get some money when you need it in a pinch. But I highly advise against it. I went on Good Morning America on Wednesday with some alternatives to these types of financial products. For example, credit unions and community banks will often work with people who walk in and need help. If you need a more affordable loan, personal loan, or other kind of loan, uh, they have many options. And people often are timid and not quick to think about working with a bank. They might have low credit, they might not have a credit history, but I know that for a fact, credit unions and community banks are more in a position to help everybody, all people. They understand that everybody's coming with different financial backgrounds. So don't hesitate to reach out to your local credit union for some assistance. Also, if you are a member of a professional organization or a union, tap in to those organizations. There might be some pandemic relief, some financial aid that's being set aside for people who apply. I know, for example, our nanny was saying that her organization, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, has set aside $400 in relief for members. That includes childcare providers and house cleaners, domestic workers who need money in a pinch. People are also asking friends and family for money. I'm not a big fan of this, but it is happening. So let's talk about it for a second. If you need money to help pay your bills, your rent, your food, and you have exhausted a lot of resources and you have a friend or a family member that may have already asked if you need help, Turning to them may not be a bad idea, but I caution that you really want to have a plan. You don't want to just take the money without some sort of an agreement, discuss how the repayment plan will work, when you think realistically you'll be able to pay back your friend, and keep your friend engaged. Let him or her know how you're using the money directly for what needs. It's nice to know. It's nice to know that the money's being used for something specific, and it is reassurance for that lender. And finally, I hate, hate, hate saying this, but let's be honest, if you really need money right now, if your house is on fire, as the expression goes, use the water to hose down your house. Don't worry so much about the cost of the water. And in this case, if you have money in your 401k and in your IRA and you're eyeing it because you don't have a job, unemployment's running out, you really don't have anyone or any place to turn to for money to immediately pay for things like rent, mortgage, food, utilities. I get it. Tap your retirement account if you have to, and you know that you have the allowance now to do so without penalties before age 59 and a half. The government is saying, go ahead, tap your retirement accounts if you absolutely need to. It's penalty-free 
until the end of the year. You can pay yourself back. I would really urge you to do that. You can pay the money back into the account. You have three years to do this to avoid the taxes. Otherwise, you're gonna have to pay taxes on those withdrawals. So just some quick tips before we get into the Friday Ask for Farnoosh questions. That was a hot button issue this week as we are nearing the end of the month. People are really freaking out. We're talking about that, you know, quote unquote, fiscal cliff. Okay, really quick before we go to the mailbag, let's head over to the iTunes review section. Pick a reviewer of the week. This person will get a free 15 minute money session with me. And this week, I want to say thank you to our friend Mickey, who left a review back in May, May 30th, going a little bit further into the archives here, who says, thank you, Farnoosh, for this podcast. I'm a woman in her early 20s who feels underpaid and undervalued. This podcast gives me hopes that I will accomplish more and one day be paid fairly for my work and effort. Farnoosh interviews successful people that share their story and relationship to money. She's a skilled interviewer and offers resources and knowledge about finances, real estate, and career development. I highly recommend listening to this podcast. It is one of my favorites. Mickey, thank you so much. Let's get on the phone. You can email me, farnooshatsomoneypodcast.com. Let me know you left the review on May 30th. You can also direct message me on Instagram. Let me know that you're the Mickey that left the review and I'll promptly follow up with a link where you can schedule a time for us to connect. Thank you so much. And if anyone listening wants an opportunity to connect with me on the phone, privately, one-on-one, this is a great way to apply, so to speak. Just leave a review. And I don't say you have to leave a five-star review. I've picked people for consults that have left less than five-star reviews. It's really just your honesty that counts. Last week, I talked a lot about my concerns about school reopening in the fall. Here in Montclair, we don't have a plan yet from the school district but we are being proactive as a family and looking for a tutor because our decision as right now is that we're not going to send our son to the classroom. He'll do virtual learning and we'll supplement with a tutor because he's not like many kids that excited and attentive on Skype. This is an absolute privilege that we can afford this. It's coming out of our savings. For me, you know, I've, I I want to walk the talk. I don't want to just say that it's important to close the wealth gap. We know that this is going to ultimately create more divide in our economy with people not getting as educated and who's not going to get educated, let's be honest. It's going to be children from families that are not as economically stable, that have low income, that aren't rich. I'm looking at prices for tutors. It's like $65, $75 an hour one-on-one. So I'm going to do my part and try to sponsor a family who needs financial support in the fall to help their child work on school material while you're working. And this could be a family who's working from home. It could be a family who's not working from home, sending their kids to school. I don't really care so much about your setup, but I understand that there's going to be a deficit when it comes to getting the right amount of education safely, appropriately this fall. It's not anyone's real fault. You know, I know the teachers are trying. I know that principals and superintendents are really struggling to find that compromise because there are so many different schools of thought. Some parents are okay with sending their kids to school. Some parents are not. Some parents are working out of the home. Some parents are at home. So it's all different levels of flexibility, financial ability, and I get that. And then the schools just don't know. They can't make it a win-win for everyone. So it's a cluster. But I want to try to do what I can do to help 
a family who needs financial support in the way that we are providing for our kids this fall. So I'm letting you know, if you are a family that could really benefit from having one-on-one instruction for your child, that this is something that has to come out of pocket, let's talk. I'm setting aside a budget to help a family in need this year. It could be someone locally. It could be someone out of state. Let's get in touch. Let me know if you are that family. If, let me know your case. You can email me, farnish at somoneypodcast.com. I don't really have an application for this. I'm just putting the word out that um, if you are a family who needs financial support to help your child get properly educated this fall, let me know. And I hope that if you're listening and you are in a situation where you can help, I would encourage you to do so because last week someone asked me on my show, how can we incorporate more things like Black Lives Matter in financial advice and in financial planning? This is one way because to deny that education doesn't impact your ability to have a healthy financial life is false. And this pandemic has already created more of an economic divide amongst the races. And this added layer of how do we educate everybody safely is going to disproportionately impact, negatively impact uh, people of color and households in low socioeconomic brackets. They're going to get further behind. And as an individual, what can you do? You can sponsor a family. You can invite another student from your school who isn't as well off as you to join outdoors with masks on to get some tutoring help with a tutor that you are paying for. I mean, we're looking at that option as well. I don't know anybody really in this town. I know a couple of families, so it's a little bit hard for me to do some outreach here other than through like Facebook groups and friends of friends, but I'm trying and I'm trying through this podcast. So if you know someone or if you are that someone who wants some support, uh, let me know. All right, let's go to the mailbag, shall we? An anonymous listener of the show has a question about whether or not to buy a home with her partner. They are not married. Here's the question. Farnoosh, it has been my partner's plan for a long time to buy a home next year. They have asked if I would like to buy a house with them. I would love to go on this journey with them, but I have some hesitation since we don't plan on being married for another year or two after buying the house. Would you recommend buying a house with a partner you are not married to? If so, what precautions should be taken? Is the process of home buying any different than a married couple purchasing a home? We have emergency savings and I already have been working on a home savings fund, so we would be financially ready to make this purchase. All right, my friend, in my case, my husband and I did buy our first home together while engaged. Were we even engaged? Yes, we were engaged. Absolutely. I think that was my requirement. My prereq was like, I'm not buying a home with just someone I love. It has to be someone I love who I'm also on the path to marrying. And honestly, I think it was the best financial move when you think about What happens when you get engaged? What is the first thing you start obsessing over? The wedding. And weddings can be very expensive. There is no ceiling to how much you can spend on a wedding or how much the industry at least wants you to spend on your perfect, most important day. Buying the home first made sure that we allocated our financial resources towards something that was far more important in the long run for us than a wedding. What I didn't want to happen was we wait on the home purchase 
instead go and plan the wedding and spend more than we should have, more than we should have and not considering what it would actually cost to buy the home next, right? So we kind of reversed those two steps. A lot of people get married, then they buy a home. If you're serious, if you've got the ring on, if you're engaged, if you know you're going to be spending the rest of your life with this person, you're committed, there is less harm, less risk, I should say, in co-signing on a mortgage together, not to say that there's absolutely no risk. There's always a risk, right? Even when you're married to co-sign on any big piece of debt. And in this case, the biggest debt you'll ever take on, most likely. I did write about this years ago, what to do if you are going to buy a home with your partner without a marriage contract first. Couple steps. You might want to get what's called a no nup <laughs> in the same spirit as a prenuptial agreement that many couples that are about to get married get, uh, where it states all of your terms in the event of a breakup so that you can split amicably and avoid court. This is really important for couples that aren't married that share major assets like a home. So I spoke to a lot of experts and they advise that unmarried couples execute a similar legal document like a prenup that's going to explain how the assets will be divided if things go south. If you have debt together, if you have this mortgage together, who is going to pay it? How are you going to pay it? What's the schedule? If you're buying a home together, you want to pay very close attention to how you're setting up that joint property if you're unmarried. You want to make sure that the title is in both of your names. If the title, which is another, which is a piece of paper that states who actually owns this property, I'm not talking about the mortgage yet. I'm just talking about the title. If it's just one person's name on that title, that is the one person who can decide on all things about the house, when to sell it, when not to sell it, how much to sell it for. Even if the other party who's not on the title has been paying the mortgage, has been paying for other things, put money towards the down payment. If the title holder also unexpectedly passes away, the house won't automatically pass to the other partner without it being stated in the will, FYI. Conversely, if only one person's name is on the mortgage, but both of your names are on the title, which is, again, that piece of paper that explicitly states who owns the land, the property, then the proceeds of the sale will be given to both people. So even if one person is just the one person paying the mortgage, but both your names are on the title, and let's say you split up and put the house up for sale, and the person who's been paying the mortgage is like, I'm going to keep all the proceeds. Mm-mm, not really legally allowed to do that. So there are some things you really want to know about before doing this together. I would recommend speaking to a real estate attorney. I think this is becoming more and more common. Marriage is not the thing that people are rushing to do these days, but I do see more couples partnering up, life partners, without marriage and, and then having all the things that you'd get when you're married, a family, a home. That's totally fine. You just need to know what the consequences may be if you break up legally, because married partners do have some legal protections in a divorce. If you live in a state like California or Texas, that's a community property state, you get divorced without a prenup, everything gets divided in half, all the assets. And if you're okay with that, great. Good thing you live in that state. But if you're not technically married, it's not so simple when you break up. You need to have a contract in place. Good luck to you. All right, a question here from Mary who says, hey, Farnoosh, I have a question on what I should do next. So planning. I'm 25 years old. I make about 70,000 a year. 
I had a $17,000 car loan as well as a $28,000 student loan balance, but I've paid off all of it in less than three years. Congratulations, Mary. That's amazing. So debt-free now, Mary says. My next step that I'm going to do is put more money into my emergency fund to cover six months of living expenses. What should I do after that? Should I put money towards retirement? Should I invest in another way? I don't know when I'm going to buy a house or settle down, et cetera, but I do want to be prepared financially. What is the best way to do this? All right, Mary, this is an excellent question. It really concerns the best way to go about financial planning when you don't really know what your plan is. But there are some steps that I think everyone can take, should take, regardless of what your goals are. There are certain things that everybody should want, right? Everybody should have emergency savings. Everybody should ideally have retirement planning underway. Everybody should work towards being debt-free. You've checked off a lot of things on this general planning list that everybody may want to adhere to. Things like paying off your debt, check. Saving in an emergency account, check. You're on your way towards six months. That's great. You're 25, so I'm not worried about you needing like a year's worth of savings. Although if you wanted to maybe go to eight months or nine months, it wouldn't kill you. Uh, I think that might be prudent, especially in this uncertain economy in this uncertain time that we have. I've been telling people, if you can do a little bit more than six months, great. If you're an entrepreneur, self-employed, a year is going to come in very handy, I predict, a year's worth of savings. You may not need all of it, but it will help you sleep better at night, knowing that you don't have to abandon your entrepreneurial dreams and go work somewhere at a desk job, but really like not really a desk job, like at your house on at the kitchen table because no one's got a quote unquote desk job right now. All right, where I see the hole right now, and you kind of stated it, is retirement. And again, this is something that regardless of what your dreams are, whether you want to like buy a boat and live on that for the rest of your life or get married in three years or have kids, not have kids, everyone's got different hopes and dreams, but I'm pretty sure everybody wants to retire at some point. Yeah. And like have money for their future, whatever, whenever that future starts, whatever that retirement starts. So I would start with your 401k at work or any other employer sponsored retirement account. There are pros and cons to 401ks. They're not perfect. And there's actually an article on Bloomberg opinion where I'm writing now, a colleague of mine wrote how 401ks don't really work anymore, that they don't really make financial sense. I beg to differ. I know that there are fees associated with some of the accounts, but there is nothing else out there right now that allows you to automatically contribute from your paycheck before it hits your bank account, which as we know, as human beings, we need that stuff. We need those, we need those automations to prevent us from spending our money in other ways. So the automation, the direct distribution is awesome. And then the other thing is that in many cases, employers will offer a match, which you don't get in a brokerage account. You don't get in an IRA. You will get it sometimes in a 401k or a 403b or any other employer-sponsored account as a benefit. If you have that, Mary, take advantage of it. It's free money. It's a great way to accelerate your savings and get a jump start. So start with your 401k at work. If you don't have a 401k or if it's not that great of a program, I would do a Roth IRA next. You make $70,000 a year, so you still qualify fully. And then beyond that, this is when you start to really think about what else 
Where am I going? What are my hopes and dreams? You're 25. Take a beat. Think about that stuff. It's important. Don't let life just happen for you. Be proactive. Be deliberate. Of course, life will always throw you curveballs. Hello, pandemic. But you need those anchors, those hopes and dreams to serve as your anchors so that you continue to steer your money in the direction that is most aligned with your values and your goals. I think often we are thrown out of college without really an opportunity and time to be self-reflective and lead with intuition. We're just sort of like following what we think we're supposed to do, get the job, get the apartment. But think about it. Think about where you want to be this time next year, this time in the next five years. I always say, even if your plans change, the fact that you started saving for these goals is not a bad thing. So you arrive in three years later realizing, oh, I actually don't want to buy a house. What am I going to do with all this savings? That's a good problem. Mary, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your question. And let us know how things go for you. Maya has a question, question about a career change, a pivot in, I'm going to guess where I'm at in her forties, I'm 40. She's been an esthetician for 19 years. So that might put you in your forties or early fifties, I'm guessing. And she's been saying, I'm making six figures pretty consistently. It's all commission-based. Needless to say, after being furloughed for three months, business is just not coming back the same. I do have a master's in nutrition, but I'm finding it hard to pivot at this stage in my life. Oh, here we go. She says she's in her mid forties. I also have a really strong interest in finance and can see myself pivoting in that field. Short of starting with a company selling life insurance, which is not appealing to me, what would you suggest is the best route to enter the field in this stage of life? I bought the book Power Moves. Yes, Power Moves is a book uh, written by Lauren McGoodwin. She was on the podcast earlier this month. Now, to become a financial planner, and pivot to financial planning, Maya, you need to take the CFP exam. You need to pass it. I think they offer this several times a year. It's a program. It's a course that you can study on your own, or you can take it online and take the exam. And if you pass, now you are in a position to apply to be a junior associate at a financial planning firm and kind of work your way up from there. You could start working with clients right away as well. But if you want to work for a firm and you've just gotten licensed, it may take you a while to kind of like move up the ladder. But I know many people who have done this, have made this pivot, they've taken the exam and they are ready to start servicing clients right away. You might want to start with some of your previous colleagues when you were working as an esthetician. I find that what helps to get men and women plugged into the financial planning world quickly is to nicheify, identify the audience. Don't be the person who's going to help everybody, help a certain segment of the population. Maybe it is people who work uh, on commission-based jobs. Start with your industry, your former industry. Are there women and men in that industry that could use your advice? They know you perhaps. They like that you know their industry, that you have experienced it yourself. Immediate trust. 
Okay. So think about who you want to service as you think about pivoting. You can take a lot of practice exams for the CFP free online and just see sort of like, do you like the material? Are you maybe already good at it? Or you need a lot of time to study? That is something that I would highly recommend as well. If you type into Google CFP practice exams, there's about 170 questions on the real exam. I think about half of the people who take it pass. So I don't know if that's good or bad. Good luck with your studying. Good luck with your pivot. And let me know if I can be a further assistance, Maya. Okay, next question is from Elizabeth. She says, I have a healthy emergency fund, a goal of one year due to the pandemic, Cray. Mm-hmm. No high interest debt, income of about $100,000 a year, likely to grow to $140,000, but I'm way behind on my retirement savings. I'm in my late 30s. Other than maxing out the 401k and the Roth IRA contributions, do you have recommendations and does that even make sense in this market? So Elizabeth, you're in your late 30s. You're going to be retiring, what, 65, 60 at earliest. So you got time to be putting your money in the stock market and letting it ride out the volatility and ending in 30 years, 35 years with more money than when you started. And so, yes, I do think that there is validity in putting money in the stock market. How much is really based on your risk tolerance, your time horizon. I recently wrote about how I dialed back my exposure to stocks. All through my 20s and 30s, I had like 80, 90% exposure to stocks. I dialed that back to 64% this month. Yeah, it was a bit of a bold move, I have to say. And one that I I did with a little bit of embarrassment and trepidation because I was like, am I completely abandoning the tried and true financial advice that everyone gives that I've even shared, you know, don't do anything and stay the course. But there's something to be said about reaching a point in your life when your goals change, your responsibilities change, your stress, your appetite for stress changes. I don't have as much of an appetite for stress. I still have an appetite for stocks. I do believe in the power of compounding and the fact that stocks bounce back and you got to give it time and patience wins, but I don't want to be too exposed. So that's me. Back to you. I do think that investing in your 401k and the Roth IRA is smart still, even today. Given where you are in your life, the fact that you've said you need to play catch up, you, you're not going to catch up by putting your money in a bank account, right? Collecting 0% interest. Beyond that, you can open up a brokerage account. Now, this isn't going to have the same tax provisions as a 401k or a Roth IRA. It's just a portfolio. You pick and choose your funds and you invest and you can take the money out at any time, which is a nice benefit, but you will have to pay taxes on that. This, for many people, serves as a supplement to all the other retirement accounts that they may already be investing in. You can open up a brokerage account virtually anywhere, like an Elevest, a Wellfront, a Betterment, a Schwab, a Prudential, a Vanguard, list goes on. So first step, max out your 401k at work. Next step, Roth IRA. Next step, brokerage account. That's kind of the hierarchy. And I love, love, love that you're working towards a one-year savings account. Okay, oranges and whiskey. That's your name on Instagram. I'm going to answer your question next. Oranges and whiskey. That sounds delicious. Don't know if you'll ever see this, but if you do, please point me in the right direction. I currently have a high interest credit card at 22% interest. I would like to keep the card because I like the rewards, but definitely want to pay it down. 
I reached out to the credit card company. They won't lower the interest rate. So should I focus on paying it down or should I look into doing a balance transfer to a new credit card? If there is a podcast or an article that you've written that covers this to some degree, can you point me in the right direction? Well, I can't remember where specifically I've talked about this. I think I talk about this from time to time. Here's my advice for you. Pay down the card as soon as possible. 22% is too high. I think you know what you have to do. If you know that you're going to be able to pay this off, the balance in less than a year, in that case, it may make sense to transfer it to a 0% balance transfer card. Those are not so easy to qualify for. You have to have a relatively strong credit score, just FYI. Uh, They usually require a credit score of the high 600s, low 700s minimum. The thing about the balance transfer cards is that while they do offer 0% for the first, say, 12 months, sometimes 15 months, after that expires, it jacks up again to usually whatever the going interest rate, average interest rate in the market is. So it only makes sense if you can commit to paying off the balance in 12 months. This transfer of the balance may also mean that the card that you currently have with the 22% interest rate is going to shut off. So those are the things you have to think about. If you shut off this card that you've had for a while that might have a high credit limit, is that going to hurt your credit score? Because we know that your credit score looks very closely at things like credit limits, longevity of credit. And if you wipe out that card and you take it out of your credit history, hmm, What's that going to mean for your credit score? So if I were you, I would try to figure out how best I can get on a fast track to paying off this debt. I don't care that the card has good rewards because if you're paying interest, that's eating up any potential benefit for rewards, right? The rewards really only matter, only really benefit you if you're not paying interest on the card, if you're not carrying a balance. You're really not going to benefit entirely from those rewards. I hope this helps. So two things, right? You either want to just stick with the card that you have, commit to paying it down as aggressively as possible. You'll pay the 22% interest, but hopefully if you can get out of this within the six six months to a year, it's not going to add up to be that much. Or you can do the balance transfer. Again, there you have to pay it off within the year for it to really make financial sense. And you do risk the chances of that other card, the old card being shut off. If it gets shut off, How will that impact your credit? I don't really know how much it will impact your credit and you may not really know either, but I will say this, if you've had the card for more than a few years, if the credit limit is in like the high thousands, let's say it's a 10,000 or more credit limit on that card and it's one of your only cards, I don't think shutting it off is gonna be a good idea. I do think that could hurt your credit in the short run. So just think about that. Think about that trade-off. All right, oranges and whiskey, might go fix myself a drink. It's the weekend, everybody. Happy weekend. Thanks so much for tuning in. Those were our questions. To reach me, very simple, Farnoosh Tarabi on Instagram, Farnoosh at So Money Podcast via email, or go to the website, somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your question by clicking on the Ask Farnoosh button. Hope your weekend is so money. 